ladies and gentlemen, tonight's performance will include naked orchardists, surprise blackbirds, and a conversation on the sacred mundane here on Created Things. <laughs> Hey, howdy, hey, and welcome to the final installment of Octspookfest here on Created Things. Here on Created Things, the only podcast where the hosts might seem uh, festive and hardened on the outside, but are in fact filled with uh, disgusting, stringy gunk. I am your host, artist and psychotherapist, Jacob Flores Popcheck. With me as ever is my good friend, medievalist and Catholic priest, Father Gabriel Toretta. How you doing today, Padre? Um, you know, I would say as full of interior gunk as always, but sometimes um, when I have a sinus infection, things really start to, I'm not going to carry on with this, but anyway, my friend, one of my best friends has uh, has this thing that he calls, well, it's the thing that everybody has, but he has a particularly horrifying name for it, which is that um, he calls it lung butter. Oh, God, why would you even say that? Well, I just wanted, I wanted to say it out. I, you know what? I wanted to say it out loud. You brought up having a bunch of gunk inside, and I wanted to say the phrase lung butter on air. I'm surprised um, you didn't take the more moralistic, spiritual, we are all truly filled with gunk at the end of the day, and that's why we need... Why Jesus would I, approach. Why would I say that? Why would I say that? I don't know, man. I, this, is I don't my know mo- man. this is my moment to talk about lung butter. Um, <laughs> people people like, want to talk about going to confession. Like, grosser. they should go to confession. That's awesome. Like, that's, yeah, but if I'm they not, want to get I'm an Eddie pot, it, they should get an Eddie pot. Yeah, exactly. I'm not going to I'm not, I'm not gonna make that a part of Oktoberfest. That's, you know, that's not spooky. That's just going to confession. But lung butter, Fair that's enough. spooky. Fair enough. Well, we have a confession, which is that we worked long and hard to set up um, an interview with a uh, master pumpkin carver who will go unnamed for this final installment of our autumn series. I, we really I am wanted- he. I, I am he. Can I? Can oh, I you're the master it? pumpkin can I, carver. Can I confess it? I just hold on. Let me strip off my face. My face off mask. Urgh! Oh crap! That's actually that's actually on there. Um, crap. Anyway, maybe well, if it's, it's not a me. face. If it's a it's a face off mask, a la Nicolas Cage and uh what's his name john, john travolta. something john, john travolta. travolta then it is sewn onto your face you can't just pull it off right crap you're like right that was plastic surgery that's true you're, go- you're thinking of the much more uh, halloween appropriate scooby-doo where at the end we pull off the mask and find it it was old man toretta the whole time hey guys <laughs> <laughs> and i would have gotten away with it too if it weren't for your main g kids um we could do a whole episode on scooby-doo my wife and i have been binging like the original scooby-doo cartoons with casey Kasem and everything there it is yeah um because we love them vintage vibes but instead we wanted to do an episode on the art of pumpkin carving we thought this would be a lot of fun and unfortunately our guest uh had something come up very last minute and was forced to cancel uh which is very disappointing for all involved but there's no more time. We have no more time before Halloween to record a a fun final installment. So we thought, you know what? We've carved pumpkins. We sort of know what the hell we're talking about. I am Let's, a I am a spook. I am an Oktoberfest pot yes. dry, and so then I, I should be able to do this. I should, you know, this I is am great. an October spooky guy. So yeah, yeah, we should be able to do this. So, um, I uh, I'll start us off here just in our little review of 
pumpkin carving as an art form, which I think, you know, as with all my favorite episodes of this series of this podcast, most people uh, would go, is that really art? Is it really art to call that? Is it really a uh, form? Right. Well, it's definitely a form and the form (laughs) is pumpkin. You see, I have a giant big old pumpkin behind me for those of you watching the video version. Oh, look at Uh, you. Found this pumpkin at the church pumpkin patch. Uh, Truly the thickest, largest stem on any pumpkin I have ever seen. Uh, is that with two C's or is that a CK? Two th- two C's and a Q, in fact. Nice. Um, nice. On how thick this pumpkin be. Um, so I was very excited about that. I'm wearing my uh, pumpkin jumper. I've got my little pumpkin sweater on here. And I've got uh, an iced pumpkin spice latte because, you know, Florida. Oh, yeah. Well, I just just in case you didn't think that I was thematically appropriate, um, I am actually wearing my um, priest costume, which is also my actual priest clothing, which is also a monk costume, which is also my actual clothing. Um, But I'm also wearing a um, Jedi costume, which is a costume. It's just also my actual clothing. I would add on because you are specifically a Dominican (laughs) priest and you guys all wear the white robes. I mean, I think you could very easily pull off spooky ghost costume. Spooky ghost. Um, The problem with the spooky ghost is how much it looks very much like um, crazy cats candy land. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's not great. That's not great. Yeah. We have hoods, but we don't put them up in public. Let's put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) um yeah yeah that that kind of stuff is reserved for uh you know our last demons episode um (laughs) yeah exactly uh, yeah (laughs) check that out if you don't know what i mean um but no i so i love pumpkin carving and i think it is actually an art form um and uh it was one of the first kind of arts that i really uh, tried to kind of dedicate myself to because when i was a little kid we had lots of holiday traditions um, but very few related to Halloween because, you know, uh, early 90s Christians, right? Um, and so we didn't, we did a lot of fall stuff, not a lot of Halloween stuff. Um, but I was big into Halloween because I was a spooky little creepy kid. And so I was always pushing to do more Halloween stuff. And um, one of our autumn traditions was to go apple picking every year at this oh, really fun. lovely orchard run by an old man named Jack. Um, and it was one of our favorite traditions. We get big bushels of apples and he sold unpasteurized cider and was constantly getting in trouble with the law for it. But unpasteurized cider is actually like way more delicious um, as is as our most unpasteurized things. Uh, hashtag hot take. Anyway, so after several years of cementing this tradition very deeply in our in our family's lore uh poor poor jack he got he got upwards in age and he decided to drive around our hometown um in his pickup truck full of apples just completely naked to do his errands um just just forgot to put on clothes because he was old okay um i can't and I feel like I can't I can't be angry with him for that. No, no, no. I mean, innocent mistake, innocent mistake. <laughs> and, um, you know, on some level, I respect it. But his kids said, hey, if he's forgetting to put on clothes, probably too old to be running an apple orchard. So the apple orchard was unfortunately shuttered. And my family uh, was very, very sad. This was one of our big traditions. And um, never, never one to take a loss like that lying down. I said, well, we should come up with a brand new tradition to replace it. And my pitch was if you go to a craft store, um, like a Michael's or a Joanne fabrics, you will see around Halloween foam core pumpkins, which are, uh, you know, look real enough, but you can carve them and they ostensibly last forever. 
right? Because and, because that's the way that Mother Nature made a pumpkin is to be made right. of um, polyurethane and to just right. last forever, which seems great. Right, exactly, exactly. And my pitch was, what if every year we carved um, one of these foam core pumpkins with some kind of symbol representing the very best thing that had happened to us that year, like the best oh, blessing we had received sweet. that yeah. year. And my parents liked this idea and we have kept up with it. Um, so that if you visit my parents' home now, there's, you know, like 23 pumpkins lining the porch, um, you know, going all the way along the banister with every single year's installment, which was of course always kind of the vision. And then my wife and I have continued it. So, um, you know, we carved a pumpkin this year representing the birth of our, our son. Um, you know, we have, pumpkins representing our move to florida when we got married etc and so forth so you know the uh, it, it's become a very fun tradition that i look forward to a way to sort of mark um the tradition but it also really ended up fueling my my design sensibilities because when i ended up going to grad school um for interdisciplinary design and there was a high focus on branding identity design logo design um a lot I, I found that I had a leg up in the logo design front that a lot of students didn't have, and I wasn't sure why. There were students who were much better at typesetting than I was. There were students who were much better at like fonts and and uh, color palettes than I will ever be. Um, but I just really had a knack for the actual development of a logo and simplifying things into those into kind of simple shapes and symbols. And I realized what it was is that when you're carving a pumpkin, right, you only have basically two colors to work with right you have yeah, the dark you have of the a interior of a couple of shades if you if you are yeah. really fine in what you're doing but like but basically two right. colors but if you're doing classic um, silhouette pumpkin carving where mm-hmm. the candle's actually showing through oh you're sure, cutting yeah. out holes and so it's like dark and then light you have the orange skin and you then you have the negative space and that's all you're working with is just negative space and positive space and um, if you want to carve a complex image, you've got to break it down and, and none of those shapes can cross over each other, right? Because you can't have, like, if you have two negative shapes pass over each other and overlap, they're just going to cancel each you other just get out, nothing, right? Yeah, right? So you have to start to think about shape in a very physicalized way that actually turns out when you're doing logo design comes again in extremely handy and you'll notice oh, this funny. but like yeah, all sure. great logos mm-hmm. all the truly great logos could be carved into a pumpkin like i could right. carve the starbucks logo or the apple logo or any of those things very easily because nothing overlaps at all and and if you have a bad uh, logo sure. it will overlap but you can't carve it into a pumpkin so there were many times where students would be kind of struggling with oh how do i simplify my logo and i would sort of look at it as i would a pumpkin carving and help them kind of simplify it. And it was one of the things that I was kind of best at in grad school. So it's interesting how much that little tradition has, has influenced me. And it's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about pumpkin carving as an art form, because I think like w- limitations like that, um, like the fact that, Hey, ultimately I'm just working with positive and negative space in a very interesting way. Um, are what make any art form interesting when you start right. to kind of break down those limitations oh, yeah. and stuff oh, sure. like that. Absolutely. So the fact that I have yep. gained so much from that particular limitation in my own career, I thought it would be worth exploring. Yeah. 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 No, I think that's really great. I think that's really great. And, um, yeah, also there's something about it. I mean, also just by its nature, right. Is that, um, because it's so entirely ephemeral, 
you know, uh, I mean, mm-hmm. one of my brothers, this is hilarious. Um, he, when he and his kids, uh, well, you know, his family, um, carve pumpkins, they just, um, they just leave them out on the patio, uh, and just don't disturb them. Um, and yeah. that means that like eight months later, they, I mean, they, so they go through the whole like collapsing face phase, but then they go into the like fuzzy green pile phase um but then you know like a year or two years later then they grow in they go into the like now we have pumpkins that grow like on the side of our front yard phase Um, yeah which is really cool i mean one of our mutual close friends did this by accident she and her neighbors threw away some pumpkins last year and this year had a pumpkin patch of like 30 pumpkins in the back of their apartment complex that's so because amazing. no one had cut it back yeah, made a yeah. huge like nighttime party with with uh, all the pumpkins and everything it was really really cool that's super great um, yeah and i do think that i mean you're talking about the ephemerality which i think is a really important point but i do think the cyclicalness of pumpkin carving is fun that like by carving it i give way to the next generation of it so our mm-hmm. our guest um it, it carves pumpkin uh, you know the the person we were supposed to have as our guest today carves pumpkins but also carves ice and so there were, i was hoping to kind of ask this person about the ephemerality of the art form and i think that's like a big component of this but i think the difference between pumpkin carving and ice carving that's really noteworthy is like by carving ice i don't beget new ice you know but right. by carving mm-hmm. a pumpkin I actually create the grounds for the next generation of pumpkins. And so it gives way to itself in this very kind of Zen, interesting, procreative kind of a way. Um, I don't know. I find that kind of kind of beautiful and exciting. Like when I throw away my Christmas tree, right? It doesn't necessarily, unless I'm very lucky, create a new Christmas tree <laughs> and, and certainly not for many, many years. But like there is this in holiday traditions there you know pumpkin carving kind of stands alone is something that gives way to itself and like as i'm carving it i can look forward to next year when this pumpkins children and grandchildren beget me yet new jack so beautiful right it is is really fun no you're totally right it's really fun and i but also with that um that i mean setting aside for the moment people for whom this is kind of a profession or sort of a um a cultivated art form or whatever um i I love the fact that particularly in our relatively sort of tradition poor culture in the United States that we that there is this thing that like really almost everybody does that we genuinely only do um like one week a year. Yeah. And I think that's really great. You know, you can get pumpkins like many times in the year like um they continue to be available long after halloween and things um you know we eat pumpkins they are actually fairly delicious in fact um you can use them for all kinds of things uh but really there is just like there's just we just really do this once and pretty much every person does it like once a year if you do mm-hmm. it at all unless it's like well you do one at school and one at home something like that um which i think is really lovely you know i just think that there's um that there's a beautiful rhythm to that as well that we like that we don't do it like in september or in late late in november or whatever or any other other random placement time when we find a pumpkin um but that it's just this kind of very particular thing that you do um for like about this week um and for all kinds of different reasons you know um People, yeah, for all kinds of different reasons, like um, the fact that pumpkin carving can be sort of like a, um, 
I mean, like home pumpkin carving now that it can be like spooky, like scary kind of thing, <laughs> or it can be just like, oh my gosh, like here's the jaggy, jiggity teethy thing. And that's like the best I can do, which is by the way, where I always was, with, I was, I'm terrible at all these things. Like I can't, I can't do anything. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so the jiggity teeth thing is like the best I could, I could really shoot for. Um, and then, but my next older brother could actually do a fair amount and I was always impressed. Um, but, uh, so, uh, you know, there's just like a few set tropes that like anybody can do um which are really really simple and you think like well why do we why do we still want to do it if they're always the same you know like if that's all mm. we can do but in the end it's like somehow there's something special about like doing that thing again this year even if literally all i can do is kind of carve the jaggedy smile face um with the eyes and like that's it and it was fun and it was good to do this year and i made a giant mess at the kitchen table and it was worth it I mean, that, and that is interesting, right? Like, this is when traditions do become magical, is when collectively, like, you can, you can of course, trace the history of pumpkin carving the same way you can with Christmas tree trimming and Easter egg dyeing. And, I mean, to get outside of the Christian tradition, you know, the 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 tradition of eating matzah, right? Or, or you know, at, at Passover, different things like this, right? You can trace those things. But when the tradition becomes magical is when we all kind of collectively forget why we're doing it, but we feel like it's very important to do anyway in sort of a cargo cultish sort of way that I find really romantic uh, and, and lovely. And I think pumpkin carving is definitely that. But again, where it sets itself apart from... Trim, you know, tree trimming, Easter egg dyeing, snowman building. Um, I mean, I already mentioned how it begets itself in a, in a really cool way. But as you're talking about it, from a purely artistic standpoint, I'm correct me if I'm wrong here. Maybe my mind is just skipping over a very blaring, obvious example. But like, this is maybe most people's who most people who are not working in the arts. I'll say that a little a positive. Maybe this is most people's only annual exposure to subtractive art, right? Because with with a Christmas tree, I'm adding things to it. With a snowman, I'm adding things to it. With um, Easter egg dying, I'm I'm painting on the surface of the egg. I'm adding things to it. You know, these are all additive art forms, additive sculpture, additive decoration. If we're just defining these things as art forms which mm -hmm. i think you know obviously mm -hmm. loses some of the romance to do that but you know follow me with with pumpkin carving as a form of sculpture where you're carving away that's not a muscle in the human brain that most of us not working in the arts are forced to utilize very often right um and i think that's kind of interesting that it's exposing that is this one sort of way a year that we all mutually agree to expose ourselves to a completely atrophied creative muscle yeah, just like the way that your that your um, apple farmer guy exposed himself uh, to you. Oh wait, sorry, that was different. Um, similar, actually, but different. Rest um, in peace, Jack. Yeah, that's right, um, Jack. I love you. You be you. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, but no, I, that is you're right. That's really lovely. I didn't. I never thought about that. But you're right because there's. I mean, you might play with if you have sort of versions of like Plato or whatever. Um, you might sort of like play around making little sculptures and things, but. Um, uh but but yeah actually like carving carving away and taking away um mm -hmm. and, and and especially connecting permanent changes on things like yeah that's probably it i can't i can't immediately think of anything else that we that we would do that's like that um yeah that's so I, I follow a, a wood carver rob kinnaman who i would love to actually get on this podcast at some point he 
he was a wood carver who basically anything that looks like it's carved out of wood in sort of a folk art kind of a way at the Disney parks. He did it and he taught oh, himself nice. how to do it with a chainsaw and like cut off two of his fingers and he has no training at all, but he, he like figured it out on the ground. Really amazing guy. And he's always talking about this, that like most people's exposure to sculpture is additive sculpture. So I'm piling on clay, you know, I'm adding more play dough to the thing and I'm building up from zero, but you know, most people don't any longer have any primary exposure to subtractive or reductive sculpture where i'm carving away marble or wood or stone or in this case pumpkins and and that is cool that we're just kind yeah. of like weirdly all mutually agreeing to again stretch that creative muscle once a year for no reason other than it kind of feels festive to do it and i feel like yeah. i'm supposed to and like why not you know um yeah that's right that's right um and it's also, I mean, it's, it's fun. This is, this is one thing that, um, other than just needing to go to the store for most people to buy a pumpkin for like a couple of dollars, you know, like, um, I, there's also not much in the way of like commercializing this, you know, it's, I mean, I know you can buy kits and these kinds of things, but they're, but that's all, that's all for, I mean, I will say I, have never felt like an angrier old man than when I went into target a few weeks ago and they had not like foam core pumpkins, like real pumpkins that someone had already painted to look as though you had done it yourself, like with local sports teams or happy faces or whatever else. So you could just buy it and put it on your porch. And I was so angry. I wanted to like burn down the store. I have never felt that war on christmas ultra conservative impulse before but i wanted to go like karen out about these pumpkins the war on halloween must be stopped Uh, that's yeah keep uh keep jack-o-lantern in halloween or whatever (laughs) that's amazing that's so great but except for that you're right like there is there's not a large way to commercialize the process of chipping away at a giant fairly inedible gourd like yeah, it's just yeah, exactly. kind of something like, you're gonna do or not do it's just kind of there it is you know um no that's right that's right i'd love you know you brought up the ephemerality point before though and i want to delve in more to that because that's something i feel like you probably can speak some some <clears throat> mysticism to based on other conversations we've had in the past but like we've talked about this before like when we were interviewing um the uh when we were interviewing the gentleman from the um the bell foundry in italy in our on our bells episode um ivo um one of the things he had brought up was this idea of you're making the bell for god and for the saint to whom it's dedicated right so that so no one's going to see this bell they'll hear the sound but no one's going to see this bell and no one's going to see the intricate carvings you placed on it you're doing it with kind of this knowledge of of God seeing it and the saint that you dedicated to seeing it. And, and I think ephemeral art, right. Art that I know is going to pass away in a certain amount of time that, that is not going to outlast not only me, but not going to outlast like next month, not going to outlast the end of November is, is a sister to that same premise of like, who am I making this art for? I'm making it basically just for the sake of creating and I think there's, I, I don't know. I would love to hear you elaborate on that. Cause I do think there's, there's probably a, a pretty deep 
mysticism to that that we've we've sort of touched on before again in in sister ways but not directly right um yeah i'd say the what for me that that makes it more of a corollary of um theater than oh sure yeah sculpture um i'd say maybe it's like materially like materially it's sculpture but like formally um like its essence its principle is that it's theater um aesthetically emotionally aesthetically emotionally like what the reality of it like how you experience it how you engage with it what it means to do it um i think is more like theater you know um like for instance um and not to scoop any future episode we might want to do about this but like i saw one time uh a woman who's a, a sand sculpture artist but the kind of stuff oh, that she cool. does is like it is literally theater like it's it, the, the the sand is constantly in motion so it like pours out and creates a thing and then she does all this stuff sometime with with the sand in motion as in motion like she's she's shaping it as it moves other times like she gets a kind of a load of it and then she shapes it and then it wipes and then it washes away and she gets another one so this is all dry sand stuff um mm-hmm. and so it, but she's making these really incredible sculptures and things but they but they last like seconds you know and so it's really a performance it's uh it's um it is properly speaking theater it's developing images it's using your body to create images that um that exist to be seen in the moment by um, the people who are there experiencing it with the performer at the same time, you know? And I think there's a a slight time delay in these things because they do exist for a little while um, independent of the actual performance. Um, One can present them, you know, separately from the performance, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. Significantly though, I mean, I think in terms of like family ritual that, um, that the enacting of it like is a drama that you do together you know like you don't you don't um sort of it's not usually the case that people like sneak off to the corners of the house um and then show up like a couple of days later or whatever masturbatorily um, sneaking off to carve a pumpkin by oneself yeah (laughs) yeah exactly you know don't worry about that don't look don't look at me it's it's probably not a sign of depression i wouldn't worry about it um (laughs) i uh you know so you don't sneak off and do this and then like show off your pumpkin like the the whole thing is like a, a thing that you kind of enact together which has a performative theatrical character to it yeah there's sort of a familial liturgy to it small well yeah. And I think um so I, I think these kinds of these kinds of creations that are by their nature designed to um to dissipate within a certain period of time, um, that they do partake of that character. I mean the 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 really particular, very special thing about theater proper um is that it only exists at the moment when it is being both like enacted and received at the Mm -hmm. same time you know so like that's the proper genius of theater and that's its particular brilliance um and where like so much of its power and beauty comes from so there's something so it's not a hundred percent right but like um but because again because it's materially sculpture um that it it has there's some like um time distension which is a little bit different but um but overall i think i'd say that's i think what's at what's at the root of it i think that's such an important point that I, I honestly hadn't considered, but you're right. I mean, it's reminding me. So, so at the particular time that we're recording this, um, the, the debate around people sneakily 
filming theatrical performances and posting them to YouTube um, is is hotter than ever. Oh, really? Um, thank thanks to I mean, it's always been a debate, but um, uh, yeah, several years ago was it Patty Lapone? I think. No, it wasn't. I'm forgetting who did it. Several years ago, there was a there was a big diva actress who like shouted at someone for filming in a in a middle of a show. She like broke character and yelled at them in the middle oh, of a no. Broadway show. Oh no! Became kind of a folk hero for doing so. And then recently, um, at a at a performance of Hades Town, which I will continue to hold as the best show currently playing on Broadway, I was able to see it live with the original cast front row um, cool. right before the pandemic it was amazing um but there was a, an unfortunate incident where someone on stage thought that someone was recording illegally called them out for it turned out that this individual was actually uh, uh deaf and it was a closed captioning device so it became like really awkward and bad awkward. and so there's like a lot of debates <clears throat> going on about what are the lines of this and things like that but what i think the debate always comes down to outside of the particular unfortunate drama there um, what the debate always comes down to is uh, some people saying, Hey, you're breaking the integrity of the theatrical space. And some people, some people will even bring up ideas of consent, right? Like you're filming someone without their consent and they're not agreeing to have their image be used this way um, versus other people talking about how like, uh, well, I don't get, I don't have the money or the ability to go to New York and see this, this show. And this is the only, way i'll be able to experience this art but i think the point that you're making is a point that's always left out of the debate but probably is the most important point actually which is like no the theater experience the theatrical experience is actually united to that particular time and that particular place you're not going to be able to see the same play twice ever even if you have tickets to see the same show every night of a given week every single one of those shows is going to be different and to to capture that on film takes it makes it a fundamentally different art form it's just yeah, not theater anymore it's just yeah i mean it's just you're just doing something different in the end i mean this is why although it's not a complete parallel but this is why i'm for instance opposed to like recording homilies recording broadcasting masses recording masses um because oh, although although they're not strictly speaking it's it's not exactly the same thing as theater. Um, there is this really critically important thing about them that they that they exist um, at the moment that they are being done. That everyone there is in the liturgy together, celebrating the liturgy together, um, and that to like and that that is that that is not a spectator sport. That that is a thing that everyone at the liturgy is doing together. Um, that like preaching is a thing that takes place like between the people who are there um that it's not just like me talking and you listening that it's something that happens between like re real preaching i mean preaching really is what it's supposed to be like it's something that happens between us um and that like happening between us is something that like as a preacher i have to take account of otherwise i'm not i'm not really i'm just i'm just talking i'm not really preaching um and so i just think that like um while there can be certain circumstances where one, you know, what for for personal reasons would it would be very helpful to hear this thing again or read this again or whatever. So like a, a wedding or a funeral homily, sometimes people will do those things. But I'd say in general principle, this is why I'm opposed to it is because it's just not that's not the structure of the art form that the, the structure of the the very nature of the thing is um part of the part of its beauty lies in its um 
being is it's to take a Heidegger thing uh is it being in time you know that it is in time and it passes away in time because it because it happens it's a um with the people who are there so like personally in terms of like the theater and thing i would say actually like yeah i mean it's stupid but i i I confess i i don't think i would really freak out about it because it's just like well you know if you want to if you want to make a hash of this thing yeah if you want to take this intentionally ephemeral thing and turn it into like alchemically turn it into something fundamentally different and experience it in a lesser capacity knock yourself out i suppose yeah i mean but it's just like you know if you're just know what you're doing just know what you're doing and you know like if you're a perfectly well person um uh who just like you know it's 2020 it's like hot late steaming 2022 and you're like still watching youtube masses or live streaming masses or whatever like don't kid yourself like you're not you're not living as a catholic just get over yourself you know like it's yeah. this is this is something else now like you're just doing something else and um, and in in weirdly the same exact way that like if you're buying a pre-painted pumpkin from target you're yeah, not like just actually you're not. living out the liturgy of a holiday and i i i not to you know artificially segue back into the actual pumpkin thing no no i like, want to i want to yeah i want to as well no yeah. but i think i think you're pointing out something really so you know as a therapist i i work with a primarily catholic clientele and the organization i work with has uh has an outreach called catholic home hom um it's an app you can download it and it's got lots of you know exciting ways uh, many of which i did the graphics for uh to kind of engage in what they call the the liturgy of your domestic church which is this idea that you know those those kind of seemingly mundane things that i'm doing with my wife and my kids throughout the day that bond us in relationship um that i could just do to kind of get them done because they're obligatory are actually small l liturgy that that bond us together that that bring us closer to god that make life more mystical and are ultimately the bedrock for the warmth in any relationship and and the warmth in in our relationship with the divine and you know there's a lot to that um pope francis has talked a lot about this and jp2 talked a lot about this and you know, other saints, Don Bosco and things like this. But I mean, I think pumpkin carving is a really good example of what we mean when we talk about small L liturgy, where it's something you could say like, oh, this is this is just this dumb thing that I'm doing with my kids. And oh, like, God, oh, it's very, very messy. Like it. Oh, it's such a mess. Oh, I hate it. It's such yeah, a mess. Yeah. I hate pulling out all the garbage bags on the table. But like the ephemerality of it the the performative aspect of it like you're talking about where we're all participating in this theatrical experience together in this weird shared space and event diagram between sculpture and theater the the fact that which we haven't even touched on the fact that like the second it's created it is immediately going into a state of decomposition like it it is you know at least with sand sculpture it's itself for a while and then it gets smashed right ice sculpture the same way where literally the second i cut into the pumpkin it's already now in flux towards its inevitable oblivion right like all of that stuff is so deep if you let it be and we can we can treat that as though that's mundane or we can recognize that all those things can serve bonding and relationship um, and and kind of anchoring us to the present moment in the calendar year in a very particular mystical way and and get a lot out of it. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, 
Yeah. And also, I mean, there's something that's delightful about it, right? Because fundamentally, it is food, right? Like, it's a food right. item. I mean, I think that's something that also that's really special about those. Now, you do with Christmas egg, with um, Easter eggs, too, Christmas which is eggs. really fun. <laughs> Christmas eggs. Christmas eggs. Um, even as a my person. My favorite tradition. My favorite Christmas egg the tradition. Christmas egg. Um, uh, it's that it's food, you know, it's so delightful that you take this thing that's food and then you make it, you make it fundamentally unfood. I mean, you can, people will like then do something with the pumpkin afterwards, but like fundamentally you make it unfood and like, that's the fun part about it. Um, and I think that's really great. This is one I wanted to, I did want to bring up a little historical note about, I was Please. thinking like, what are, what are historical kind of parallels that I can think of? So like, I'm going to be totally, totally frank. I did not even, it never even crossed my mind to like look up the history of pumpkin carving. So if gentle listener, if you were looking for that, look somewhere else, that's what YouTube is for. <laughs> anyway, um, Father Gabriel didn't do his gosh darn job this week. <laughs> yeah. You shut up. You just get me you, a beer. You, mean you, right? didn't, you didn't pull out what, some obscure ninth century German bishop said protesting about pumpkins as being pumpkin too carving. like yes, exactly. Jansenistic or something. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's just the, it's the ninth and the eight, and the eighteenth century at the same time. Don't worry about it. It's cool. Um but uh but yes, uh so there is this thing because I was thinking about okay, well but their food and how delightful it is that like the thing is that you take this food and then you make it unfood and then it kind of rots and it goes away. But like, but the point, like the spectacle of it being food that is now unfood is like really fun uh, and it's ephemerality and stuff and it's and that kind of theatrical character of it. Well, that is something that has a really rich and long history in, um, well, just in human experience in general. But one thing that's really interesting is that um, I... This is a known thing about like, so th there are like medieval cookbooks that still survive. Um, they are not going to be like what you, I mean, do yourself a favor and like find some medieval cookbooks. Um, you can find some online. Usually, mostly they're kind of early modern, like 15th and 16th, 16th century. But like, especially if you can get some old, dig up some older ones um, on like research websites or whatever, they are pretty wild. They will not look at all or sound at all like what you think they were going to be. Some some of them do involve timing out um, stirring and cooking times by like recitation of prayers and things. Mm -hmm. Which can be confusing because um, it can take a really, there's a wide span and variety between how long it takes to say um, an Ave Maria, for instance. Um, right. You know? Yeah. I've read several recipes like this where it's like, you know, three Aves hence, thou shalt take it off the fire yeah, and place like, it upon a cooling rack. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not that kind. Um, anyway, so that's all great. But basically, so there's this one really interesting um, kind of medieval uh, think thinker about the Middle Ages called Carolyn Walker Bynum. And she wrote, she wrote this really interesting analysis about like medieval cookbooks and foods and things and she says that like um one one takeaway point from like reading a bunch of medieval cookbooks is that um it seems really clear that they are significant that for like, a feast we're talking like for kings and stuff you know mm -hmm. um this isn't like happy home cooking um i they are really much less interested in how the food tastes and significantly more interested in like what it looks like and what it does. 
Yeah, dude. Um, like we talk a lot about Instagram food culture now, but no one has no, no one Instagram has food culture this, yeah. has anything on the medievals who are like, it can yeah, literally yeah. taste like a burnt butt, but I would like it to look like a pig and a peacock had an illegitimate ungodly child. And, I and this it. is it. And it's amazing. Like, for instance, they would, um, uh, you know, pluck and skin a bird. Um, and then cook it and then put it back inside its feathers so that it yeah. like it would be inside it's cooked inside its own feathers, you know, or um, uh, yeah, so things like that um, where you're like this is but those are kind of meant to be eaten. But there's a lot of you read the recipe sometimes and it's genuinely unclear from the descriptions like literally, literally, is this a puppet show? <laughs> or well, did like, people I mean, the classic, eat this? The classic nursery rhyme of four and twenty blackbirds. Baking I was about pie. to bring like that up. Yes, a yeah, real please, thing that a, happens, right? Where like I bring out a pie, you cut into it, a bunch of freaking living blackbirds living fly birds out of a pie crust, out. and do we then kill the birds and eat them? No, no, no. they just go away. It's literally just a cool thing. Like, like sort of the, the great grandfather, you know, sort of weirdly pagan medieval great grandfather of a sexy lady jumping out of a birthday cake. It's, it's that, but it's with the, it's so, so much better, it's so much better version. Let's be totally so honest. Better, like, so much better. So much and just better. So many birds jumping out and crapping all over the place. Just, uh, who, who, by the I way, will, I will say been, are, have been inside a pie that has been in the oven while they've been inside it i mean they're fine apparently birds i don't can think this, so i think i think the whole idea is that you bake you do sort of the, so you, the half, you bake a, you bake an empty you, crust oh and then you put you, it on top of you them. bake the top of the crust you bake the the bottom of the crust and then you place then the you, crust you on top the, of them how you, you the wrangle them all in there that part is that part seems really mysterious me. yeah yeah the same part seems really mysterious but i will say it turns our out producer, this is what four and twenty blackbirds do yeah mm-hmm. four and twenty four twenty blackbirds baby heck yeah um our producer Kyle Meineke uh, had a D&D inspired medieval dinner party and there we go. We had, we had probably the most tense argument of our friendship because he and I went to a meat market and I so desperately wanted to buy the things to make a cock and trice, which is that half. What is that? Ha- that's the half peacock, half boar thing where oh, you wait, like that's sew a real them thing. together You're not that up. no that's real that's like a very popular thing where you would sew together two animals to make it seem like you killed a medieval uh mythical animal from from like a bestiary or from an yeah, illuminated yeah. manuscript and the most popular one was either a peacock or a swan and you would take its half and you'd sew it to the half of a of a suckling pig or a wild boar oh, and then you so bring much. it out and they had boar and they had duck and they had goose and i was like we could we could freaking do a cock and trice my guy and he was like we're not i want to grill it i'm not grilling a cock and trice that is ridiculous i'm like you could grill a cock and trice you should not grill a cock and trice i'm gonna tell you right now but um (laughs) you should not grill that he was right on this one it would however have been awesome to do yes it would just i mean talk about instagram food i mean those are some those are some really disturbing photos just this pig and this duck (laughs) oh my gosh i mean yeah that's yeah i mean i I guess like the turducken is the modern is the modern um, totally totally species there you know yeah freakish chimera of food but on on the medieval level um 
you know, not directly related to Jack Lan- J- Jack Lantern carving, but there's a great uh, YouTuber, uh, their channel's called um, Tasting History, and he's this guy who was just working in advertising at Disney, and then he got fired during the pandemic and decided to become a historical cook. And so he digs out recipes from ancient Greece, from medieval texts, from Renaissance texts, and like in the actual language and like translates them and then tries to make them with the ingredients he can find from the supermarket. And they're so, so good. But he found this recipe, the earliest known recipe for um, pumpkin pie from the very early 1600s. I believe. And it was called pumpkin pie at this point, pumpkin pie. And it wasn't like a custard at all. Like, cause what we eat now is technically like pumpkin custard pie. Really? Sure. Um, It's just hunks of pumpkin. It was just stringy, gross pumpkin mixed with currants and apple and thrown in a crust. And, and so it's sort of on some level more autumnal. Yeah. Yeah, Kind of a stew in a crust, Um, which is, which is very English. I mean, like, I mean, we don't, we don't do it so much anymore. Although the although the um, the chicken pot pie of oh, Swanson's sure. yeah. burn your mouth fame is the is yeah. probably the and I do love a good shepherd's pie. I love a good shepherd's pie. Or although like that a fish doesn't usually have the crust, an, right? Um, yeah, that's true. That's true. I'm always disappointed because yeah, yeah, yeah. it's just mashed potato on top, and I want a little decorative crust. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's the oh, but well. like but the English. I mean, this is this is a big thing, you know, like serving things inside pies, which is exciting. Um, yeah. Including brings living, living blackbirds, living blackbirds, um, (laughs) to go back to both Broadway and Halloween, uh, human being meat. They're doing a revival Mm. of Sweeney Todd right now on Broadway with Josh Groban that I can't wait to see. So there it is. You know, it it all connects, man. It's all connected on a big Kaiser Soze, Pepe Silvio red threadboard. Um, on the history thing though, I do think you make a good point about food and food stuff being used as non-food stuff being an important part of tradition because i was you know i didn't look into it for this episode this is just something i knew already but but most people i think are at least tentatively aware that um jack-o'-lantern carving only became pumpkin carving uh when people came to the when immigrants came to the united states that originally it is turnip carving the earliest jack-o'-lanterns oh, are little yeah. turnips in it's ireland not as exciting not as I mean, exciting. nobody wants to eat that so i guess that's fine right but definitely scarier like because much they, scarier yes. they're scary faces they're scary really really scary faces and um and then of course you know they come to the u.s and that becomes pumpkins because pumpkins are just all together better on every single level than turnips but um i do think it's interesting because like you uh you know i had mentioned you know matzah and things like this in 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 judaism but you know specifically speaking for my own catholic culture like it is surprising how many traditions do come down to we're going to use this food stuff as art and it it in it in a coming from cultures in antiquity where food was maybe not super plentiful and you didn't necessarily mm-hmm. know when your next meal was coming from. I think that's such a beautiful way of celebrating a thing, right? Because what you're ultimately saying is this thing is more important than necessarily surviving till tomorrow. Like I'm going to take this pickle and I'm going to hang it on the Christmas tree as a weird symbol for the baby Jesus, because 
I think it's more important to celebrate the baby Jesus than it necessarily is to eat that pickle and survive till tomorrow. And I'm going to do that with the pumpkin and I'm going to do that with the eggs. I mean, eggs are a little different because, you know, they're only getting dyed for uh, and they're different colors because you're preserving them during Lent in different types of vinegar. But nevertheless, with that exception aside, like a lot of this stuff is the sacrificing of sustenance for the sake of art and community and performance and celebration. Which again, I mean, from the perspective of an art podcast, which at the end of the day, this is what this is. I think that's really beautiful because it's saying, hey, at the end of the day, art and the communal experience of this art is actually maybe the most important thing, even more so than necessarily surviving till next week. Yeah, that's interesting. No, I hadn't thought about that that way. But um, I mean, of course, the the reason why these things come at the times that they do is because they'd be at the moment when these things would be plentiful. Um, but the point is well taken, you know, that, um, that there are ways of, um, uh, there's some ways of preserving these things so that they last a little bit longer. Um, and in lieu of doing that, you just say like, man, I'm going to, I'm going to cut it up and face on my wall. Hey, it's well, there's a, face. there's a type of reductionist moralism that takes on different faces throughout history that says, don't do that because. You know, it's a waste. Yeah, it's, it's a, waste. a waste. So like mm-hmm. you see this in the kind of American um, anti-Christmas tree movement that happened during the, you oh, know, no. the Teddy, the Teddy oh, Roosevelt no. administration. There were what? a lot of people who said like, this is destroying the environment. And, and Teddy Roosevelt actually like thought about outlawing Christmas trees. What? And then there was a guy, there was a, an, a nature guy botanist to explain Teddy Roosevelt, like, no, actually cutting down small pine trees is actually very good for the environment. Uh, Cause you're culling stuff that could be cotton brush fires, see our Smokey the bear episode. And so this was actually what repopularized Christmas trees in the U S but like that kind of moralism where it's saying, Oh, you know, this is ecologically a waste. So like every once in a while, I do see some kind of YouTube essayist saying, don't carve pumpkins. Like that's a waste. You should be, you know, using this to, I don't know, feed the poor or, you know, decorate some, you know, like, I don't know, whatever the hell. Uh, and then, you know, even going back in a Christian sense to like, Judas saying to Jesus, like, hey, we should be using this oil and selling it to the poor, not using it like as an artistic, beautiful, smelly, good type thing. And I think like whether you're going from the religiously scrupulous perspective that Judas is espousing or the more ecologically scrupulous position that many people espouse now, it is ultimately the same thing that that you can approach life as a series of um a series of uh, sacrifices where I'm sacrificing joy uh, for the sake of prolonging a thing and being very measured and being very puritanical that way. Or I can approach life as a series of opportunities to celebrate now and trust God that I'll be okay tomorrow if I do. And I think that that's such a, I mean, again, speaking from an artistic perspective, what a profound way to approach art especially ephemeral art like pumpkin carving saying, Hey, this isn't going to last forever. This doesn't have any explicit, obvious purpose, but it is mystical. It does bring us together. It is important. And it's so important that I'm actually going to put aside everything else, whether that is for a medieval person, the possibility of eating tomorrow or whether that is for now, like getting an extra hour of work done because I didn't stop to carve a pumpkin with my kids. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Which is, you know, I think that's really great. You say like that there is something about this, about its sort of wastefulness um, in a mild sense um, that actually is part of its virtue. 
It's like, yeah, no, that's right. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make a case that this will like increase your efficiency uh, and like do various things for you. Like, no, it's just this is great. It's a waste. Yeah, you, you waste a few hours going to the store and picking all these things up and making a mess of your house and whatever. And like, um, and that can be that can be like you said that can be a complete pain. Um, and something that you sort of hate and that you dread about the the approach of this time, or it can be really great, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I'm, I referenced Pope Francis when I was talking about liturgy of domestic church, but like, this is something he, he says all the time, the importance of wasting time with your kids. Oh, cool. And and that that is sacramental, like go waste time with your kids. I think, and going and wasting time with your kids, going and wasting time with God, going and wasting time with art, like it feels like that is somehow an enemy or an antagonist to the things that I need to do to keep me alive. Again, whether that is hoarding food from the harvest or whether that is getting that extra hour of work done at the office. But ultimately, you know, in sort of a, a Robin Williams dead poet society kind of a way, like this is actually the stuff that makes life worth living. And why are you trying to prolong your life if it sucks so bad that you can't take two hours to carve a pumpkin? Right, 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 right. Um uh yeah yeah no i think that's i think that's really right i mean i certainly know this is easy for me to get caught up in as um particularly right at this moment in the kind of graduate graduate student mode is because like there is always significantly more to be done you know and so like my my life is pretty kind of regimented schedule out to make sure that mm-hmm. i don't like there's always more to be done but at the same time i could also just like watch netflix for two weeks and like nobody would know um and like so so i need i need to have like a pretty set schedule to keep myself actually working but then also there's mm. always more to be done and so there's also the sense of like oh i shouldn't like go do x y and z because like shmeh, i got stuff to do or whatever but like sure um you know i feel like i i didn't exactly see that this conversation was going going to go in this direction but i'm really glad it did uh, because in part it makes me feel better about my decision to just like go buy a bunch of opera tickets today, which I did. Um, oh, good for you. <laughs> I thought I looked at, I looked at this and I was like, I don't really know that I can afford to go to these operas, but also can I not afford to go to these operas? And so I'm going, right. Operas. That's exactly it. Like, I so, don't know if I can afford to take the time this weekend. I've like, I'm literally, I'm in the middle of a rebrand project. I'm in the middle of like, I have don't change your brand. Jacob, of, you're beautiful. No, as not you for are. Me. I'm, I'm rebranding, um, an, another company. And then I'm, I'm, I'm doing like, uh, several pieces of concept art for like a, a, a theme park attraction that, you know, we'll be able to be like public next year sometime. And I'm illustrating a kid's book and then I have clients to see and this podcast to do. And it's like very easy to say, I mean, I literally think we carved pumpkins as a family, like at 10 PM on Sunday night, but it was so still that's really awesome. important to do that. And I'm, I felt so good after, like I literally was in a, the, a better mood than I've been in for like three or four weeks because I took the time to bond to engage in art for art's sake, to engage with beauty for beauty's sake, um, to to not put stock in something because it's going to last, but to put st- stock in something because it is ephemeral and it is beautiful and that's enough. Um, and it it, it bore uh, it didn't. It's not just going to bear pumpkin seeds and new little baby pumpkins next year. It bore positive psychological and spiritual fruits in me right away. So with that in mind, I I hope you guys will uh, give yourselves permission to engage, if not in pumpkin carving in, and and hopefully you will do pumpkin carving, but, but also in all sorts of ephemeral art for art's sake, beauty for beauty's sake and relationship for relationship's sake, because 
as we've been saying this episode, that is ultimately uh, what it's all about. So go get ephemeral, go get mystical and go forth and create cool things. Happy Halloween. This has been Created Things, an art, soul, and mind production with Jacob Flores Popcheck and Father Gabriel Toretta. Production by Kyle Meineke and Jessica Flores. Theme song by Federico Carranza. For more on the podcast and on its hosts, visit artsoulandmind.com.